Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 183. What goes into a code review in Python? Is there a difference in how a large organization practices code review compared to a smaller one? And what do you do if you're a solo developer? This week on the show, Brendan McGinnis and Nick Thapen from Sorcery return to talk about code review and automating code assistance. Nick and Brendan discuss their personal experiences with code reviews. From working together at a large company, to starting Sorcery as a pair of developers, to growing a team. They've experienced how various organizations review code. We discuss the importance of keeping code reviews positive and maintaining developer momentum. Nick and Brendan share techniques for automating organizational code rules and retaining institutional developer knowledge. They've been busy developing new features for Sorcery, moving beyond the current refactoring features. Their team is leveraging LLMs to build an automated code assistant that can perform code reviews, write tests, and answer questions about your code base. The goal is for it to act as a personalized computer pair programmer. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Well, I want to welcome back Brendan and Nick from Sorcery. It's fun to talk to you guys again. Hello. It's a pleasure to be back. Hey, it's great to be here. We met up at PyCon this last year. Briefly, I came by the booth and you were showing me some fun stuff that you were working on inside of Sorcery. And I, th I think we'll probably dig into quite a bit of that today, talking about how you guys are bringing more AI to the platform and, and specifically LLM stuff. And then we happened upon a, a good source of questions, which is code review. And when I think you guys were first on, we were talking more about sort of refactoring code. And then mm -hmm. Rekka and Ben yeah. were on and we talked much more about code metrics, which is kind of somewhat of a related thing to code reviewing. But maybe, you know, why did you want to come on and talk about code reviews? What were some of the things that you wanted to, to dig into? I mean, we've been building Sorcery for several years now, and it's always been a pair programmer. It's always been something that helps you as you write code. And one of the areas that it's also been useful is in the code review process. So we have hundreds of rules that check that you're writing your Python code in the best possible way. And more recently, we've been thinking, well, LLMs are this incredible tool. How can we leverage them to make code reviews all the better? So we've been spending a lot of time recently thinking about what the perfect code review looks like <laughs> and then imagining can we make this possible to be automated can we take the best possible human code review and do it in an automated fashion cool so yeah really want to talk about our ideas in that front and yeah discuss it with you yeah i thought maybe we could talk about a bit of a background thing too in that sense like i have had less experience in having code reviews i've been at more 
small organizational like groups inside of like a bank or a law firm or other things like that. And so it was very small teams and we might look at each other's code here and there, but there was no formal process. And so it seems a bit foreign to me to think about like, okay, well, what, what does that really look like and what goes into it? And obviously by developing these tools, you guys have thought, <laughs> thought about it quite a bit, but maybe you can talk about like what your experience was like uh, going through code review as like a junior person, like what did, what did that look like? Nick, what do you think? Yeah, it was interesting. Sort of in the company we joined, because uh, we both worked at the same place when we first started up, they didn't have code review either. So they had manual QA. They didn't have any unit tests. You know, sort of you could maybe show your code to other people, but it wasn't a formal process. Okay. And the code base kind of, they did show that up. Like it was a real mess and full of bugs. And often you'd introduce bugs and they wouldn't be caught. So like, we knew we wanted to do it when we started Sorcery, and we definitely reviewed each other's code. And it's interesting how it's kind of evolved sort of as we've hired people. So to begin with, just the two of us working back and forth, we'd often be pretty harsh with each other, and we'd just be like, <laughs> fix this, fix this, fix this. I was looking back at some old reviews, and we're like, yeah, the other person would be like, yeah, and sometimes we get in sort of mini arguments. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure. It's definitely evolved, especially as we hired people. It's very kind of instructive, because we thought, We'd written well-structured code that you could be really understood, but a lot of it was kind of our intuition had built up over a couple of years. Yeah. And new people came in, they're like, what is this? And the code review process became kind of a knowledge transfer as well as like, uh, you've done this wrong or whatever. It's sort of... Okay. And we've really focused on trying to be as constructive as possible. A lot of us have started using um, conventional commits. Maybe Brendan uses them more than me. Maybe you can talk about that to kind of make sure the review comments are all kind of individually clear and the overall comment is sort of positive uh, while still being able to get all the benefits of code review. So that's interesting. So the the code review, <laughs> I guess that kind of makes sense that the more people that you add to your organization, you're going to get these different, um, not only backgrounds and, and their experiences with code review, but different techniques and it becomes kind of a, a sort of a, a soup of, you know, working together and, and, and building up. I guess I could see that could go maybe wrong in some ways. Are there things that you had to think about inside the organization that you wanted to set as rules to keep things positive? Because you kind of mentioned that briefly, that you that that was something that when it was just the two of you, it could be slightly more combative, at least what it sounded like <laughs> so um in in the words you said there but as you add probably other additional people it'd be it might be uh might be easier to figure out ways to make it less like that i think it, with anything like this it's always a learning process okay but in, in an ideal situation you have worked somewhere in the past that has got excellent processes and does code reviews great and then you learn from the best it's all always good to have someone to teach you how to do things well and everyone who came in had done code reviews before so they all brought their own knowledge of it as well and so we took all of the best of everyone else's ideas and yeah we got better over time i certainly was probably the most or least constructive with or uh, <laughs> the most like this is wrong. Okay. It needs to be done like this. And part of that is part of that could also go 
come from a lack of knowledge transfer in the first place. It's like, I know that this is going to cause a problem down the line because of something that I know about in the other, in another part of the code base. And maybe I'm not clear enough in my explanation of that as to why it's going to cause an issue. So it's just like, oh, this needs to be changed. Please change it. As opposed to like, here's the background. This is, this is the issue that it might cause. Uh-huh. If you knew about this, then maybe you would have done it in another way. So again, like another way to look at it is that's something that's been caught a little bit too late. If the knowledge transfer had happened earlier on with better onboarding, better internal documentation, maybe like better kickoff for the actual project and talking about the various things that need to be known, then it might not have got to code review in the first place. Okay. But if it does get to code review, then there's a way of talking about it that makes it easier to accept from the other person's point of view and more likely to reach a, a good solution right as well uh, like sometimes i ended up in like back and forth like debates on the merits of things and that's not really productive to either person yeah i think we've got a few kind of guidelines of sort of most important is like timeliness one of the main drawbacks of code review is you're waiting around for a long time certainly we've heard that from our users or you know, people we talk to at companies. If you're waiting days and you've switched context and then you get the results back and you sort of have to switch back and you're working on several things at once, um, that's kind of awkward. So we try and be like, yeah, get reviewing as soon as you can, like within the next, ideally the same day, like next morning or whatever. And generally a sort of 90% of our reviews are kind of approved with comments as opposed to sort of request changes and have a big back and forth. So it's sort of like... We might make some comments about changes that need to be made, but then we trust the other person to go in, and do those, and then merge it. Did that take a while to develop that trust? It took a while to develop that process, definitely. I think we realized that code review was a bottleneck. So it took a lot of time, especially when there's back and forth. Yeah. And so this process of approve with comments is kind of ideal because it's like, I've reviewed it. These are the things that need to change or I have some thoughts about. I trust you to go and do it. We're, like, we have a high level of trust within Sorcery, very, very high level of trust. So we assume that people will address those comments. And it's only in a rare case that we'd say, this needs to change. And typically, the, the only reason that that is going to be is if it's not meeting the requirements of the feature or the bug, if it's not fixing the bug or it's not implementing the feature. And normally, again, this is something that's probably happened upstream, which is the bug wasn't well enough defined or okay, or the, the project wasn't well enough defined. You didn't set the person up for success in that sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like if, if there's a request changes, I, I recently requested changes and my comment was, sorry, this is my fault. I didn't define the project well enough and there's this thing that's missing about it that needs to be done and then the the person did it and then it was all good it was approved and ready to go but yeah the, the thing that you want to avoid with code reviews is like request changes some changes are done request changes because each of those interactions can often take you know a couple of hours or half a day and it's a huge amount of back and forth and slowdown when you have that. I think that's really fascinating. I, I, I like that idea of approved, you know, like 
this can move forward. And but these are my additional comments on it. I think that really starts out uh, a person with such a positive feeling like, oh, good. Okay. (laughs) And it's more directional as opposed to correctional or like, you know, in kind of like a bad way, you know, like, like, you know, this is wrong. So I, I, I think that's really a positive experience. Is that something that just kind of organically happened or happened through conversations as you guys developed your techniques? Yeah, I think it happened through a lot of conversations. We did talk to the team about it, especially being remote. This idea of keeping a positive attitude with each other, uh, it's really important, like in all your interactions. Like it's a lot easier to appear sort of uncaring or like down on things in written context, like in a code review. Yes. (laughs) As opposed to just like a chat. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So probably you have to bias more towards being that sort of positivity than you would if you're sitting next to someone. The, the other thing that's nice is we use GitHub for all of our codes and we use uh, pull requests, which we have our code reviews on. Okay. And you can put in branch protection rules in GitHub, which say pull requests cannot be merged unless it's got an approved review. Okay. And all of the comments that are on that pull request have been resolved. So that means that we can basically automate that process. Like, you cannot merge that code until you've got the review and you've addressed all of those comments that someone's made. So, you know, it's it's very easy. Like, it's fire and forget from the point of view of the developer. They ask for the review, and then they know they just have to resolve all of the issues, and then it's done, and they can merge it. Nice. And vice versa from the point of view of the reviewer they can once they've given the review they can forget about it because they know that everything is going to be addressed so it just keeps that flow going there's the minimum friction there's maximum amount of information shared and everything gets done rapidly so speaking of rapidly what would be a a common sort of time frame I, i know you said turnaround but like as far as someone writing code like how long would they go writing code? Would it be based around a, a specific feature or a specific bug? Is it possible that somebody would be overreaching that and trying to do several things at once, or is that kind of frowned upon? I know I'm kind of getting into the weeds, but this is fascinating to me Like to think about what kind of works in a, in a smaller... I consider you guys still kind of in that sort of startup phase because you're sort of a small t- team that way. But do you have metrics on that? we want to keep it within like, you know, a code review based upon this feature, this bug, this update. Yeah. Ideally we want to, we always have this aim of like, it's at most like a day's work. Okay. Wrapped up and reviewed. Um, probably on average, it's more like two to three days. Like if it's a little bug, it might only be an hour, but like if we're doing a feature, it generally stretches to more than a day and we're sort of, we often try and have conversations about, you know, how can we cut things up a little bit finer? Okay. That's where it's kind of ended up. Okay. So finer is kind of the direction things lean as opposed to like coarser chunks. Yeah, it's a, it is a challenge. It's certainly a challenge to review giant pull requests. And probably of everyone in the team, I'm the most guilty of producing <laughs> them. <laughs> it's laughing with, the, with knowledge there. <laughs> And and sometimes a feature is very, very large and it's difficult to break up. 
And one thing that does help with that is to actually write some directions to help review this. When I do write a very, very large pull request, I say, this is how you review it. This is the most important file. These are the things that you need to look out for. This is like a high level of how it works. So that you're not just you're not just seeing like a giant block of code and going, where do I start with this? There's there's almost like a map of like the directions to review it. Yeah, I think that's one good thing we did introduce sort of in the past, I can't remember when, the past year maybe, of sort of when you're sending it for review, do go through and comment it yourself. It's easy in GitHub. Just anything that's unusual or like pointing the reviewer towards something you're not sure about or, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and it really does help when you're reviewing to have that. I could imagine because that might be immediately another back and forth that could be interrupted with a remote kind of conversation where like, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> so having some kind of guideposts in your code. Yeah, I'm, I would lean toward having lots of copious uh, comments. And in my opinion, I, I feel like they're kind of free. <laughs> you know, like, why not include them in that sense? And they can always be cleaned up later. Do you feel like this process would be very different at a, or substantially different at a larger company? I mean, we worked at a large company and it was okay. completely different. <laughs> but I, okay, <laughs> sure. I, I kind of think it's, I'm not sure how much it's down to the size of the company and down to the culture of the company. All right. So, I mean, Google is absolutely ginormous. I don't know, maybe they have 100,000 developers. And they famously have fantastic tools, fantastic review process. Like if you commit code into in Google, you get a review within a very short period of time. Okay. So like you get to stay in the flow and they insist on very small commits and they have processes that make it easier to have small commits. I found this uh, guide uh, from them, their sort of standard of code review. I haven't reviewed it yet, but I'm guessing a lot of that stuff's in there. Is that something you've looked at? Let me look at it now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, because you looked at their Python style guide a lot. Oh, you did? I'm not sure about what this review one is. It's kind of interesting because it has like, uh, you know, literally the first page is, you know, how to do a code review. And then it has subsections for the standard of code review, what to look for in a code review, navigating a CL in review, speed of code review. So it, they definitely, uh, you know, it's an open source site, which is kind of neat. They have this little you know, button on the bottom that says improve this page uh, and it's hosted on GitHub. So I think people might find it handy again, if you're coming from scratch <laughs> and, and trying to develop it. Cause I, you know, we, we've talked about on the show, just kind of silly stuff that shouldn't be included in code review or things that can get that you can kind of get rid of right away, like code formatting. I don't know what you guys use, but the common refrain has always been black. And and even though a lot of people maybe not like what it looks like, at least they can agree on it. And and then that doesn't have to be part of the review. <laughs> is that is that on your organization too? Absolutely. I mean, we make a tool that does part of the code review process yeah, for yeah, you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but before we do that, we format the code. We have formatters not just for black, but various other languages that we use. We have linters and yeah, that saves a massive amount of time. Like there's, if you're having to say, move this bracket onto the previous line, then that's a waste of everyone's time if it can be automated. So yeah, yeah. that's, that's really 
what we're thinking about code reviews, like how much more can we automate? Can we do even more than just this formatting and linting? Can we start to provide useful insight? Can we start to point out actual issues in the codes that that has been changed here? This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. Often as a developer, you need a quick way to try out code in Python or an environment to experiment and learn. And usually, you'd turn to the Python REPL, the Redevaluate print loop that's available when you type Python at your terminal prompt. But the Python REPL shipped with Python has several limitations. Luckily, alternatives like BPython offer a much more programmer-friendly and convenient experience. This video course is titled Using the BPython Enhanced REPL. It's based on a written tutorial by Bartosz Jaczynski. And the course instructor is Darren Jones, and he shows you how to install and use BPython as your alternative Python REPL, how to boost your productivity thanks to BPython's unique features like syntax highlighting, bracket matching, code suggestions, auto-completion, even auto-indentation, and contextual history. And he'll show you the features of runtime type introspection, how to look at function signatures and doc strings. The course digs into how to tweak BPython's configuration and color theme, and how to use its keyboard shortcuts, and even shows you how to contribute to BPython's open source project on GitHub. If you've watched a few of our RealPython video courses, you may have noticed the instructor taking advantage of what a tool like this provides when teaching and explaining new ideas. And now you can use BPython to experiment with your code or quickly test an idea without switching context between different programs, just like you would inside of an integrated development environment. Like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. And all RealPython courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. Is this kind of a, when we first talked almost three years ago, um, I think, <laughs> or maybe exactly three years ago, we were talking mostly about refactoring, which is part of this, and using sorcery as a tool to help in that process and giving you suggestions and improving your code, and maybe you haven't thought of this and so forth. Is this a new angle or you know, has this been a shift that I, I haven't been aware of for a while for sorcery um, to move toward like a, a, co- a code review assistant? Yeah, it definitely is a new angle. I guess um, over the past year, we've been kind of seeing how powerful LMs have become. Sort of yeah. Lots of people using Copilot, lots of people using all these different tools. And it kind of started to dawn on us that maybe we can make really powerful use of it for certain certain parts of the kind of code development process. So maybe it was back in June or July, we started really sort of leaning into it and trying out different things. Okay. And it sort of dawned us that code review is a nice discrete piece of the software development workflow yeah. where it can provide real value. You know, you're waiting around for code review for days or hours. What if you get some really actionable feedback kind of instantly? It's all really awesome. And trying out, it seems like some of the models really can provide not just nitpicks, but like actually good advice or good comments or catch bugs. So we decided to, to try it out. Nice. Is that something that, you, that you've noticed? We've talked about it briefly on the show, the idea that there's 
the LLM models have been changing, you know, you know, especially open AI has gone, I guess, 3.5 to four, or I, I don't know, I'm going to get my numbers wrong in my head. Yeah. Has that improved the code review process for you in, in the answers it's providing? We've been talking about it from more of a, maybe a language uh, aspect and I haven't been really digging into it. And this seems very unique in, in a way that it's like a code looking at other code and providing useful su- suggestions as opposed to like actual, like inserting the code in or auto-completion or what have you. So uh, the, have the updates helped? Yeah, there's a definite difference. So sort of if you feed a diff to 3.5, it might not quite understand that there's been code at ad- that concept of there's been code added and taken away. So it might make comments or suggestions about code that's been removed in a way that's not <laughs> not quite right. Okay. Whereas what was impressive about GPT-4 was there was one particular example where it caught a logical error. It's sort of a change we're making and it's sort of um, if this flag was not set, return an empty Python list because we don't, yeah, we're not sending things back. But it should be if this flag is set and it's more, it's implied by the name. So it's sort of very hard for a traditional static analysis tool to be like, oh, the name means it should work this way. So you've kind of flipped it. Okay. So it was able to do like a a couple steps forward, kind of like chess moves of like, if if you're doing this, that this is what's going to result from it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so sort of occasional real gems of insights are possible. Um, and we tried out various models. So we tried out Claude, which is kind of okay and gives pretty good feedback. But at the moment we found GPT-4 is kind of the best at doing this of the ones we've tried so far. Nice. Code Review is part of a larger coding assistant that we're building at Sorcery. Okay. Our vision with Sorcery has always been to build a pair programmer for you. Like, and we, we think about it as what is a perfect pair programmer? What does a pair, per, perfect pair programmer do? So really, they're able to do anything. They're able to write code. They're able to review code. They're able to explain code for you or like tell you where something is in a code base. And as you complete a piece of coding, then they're able to review that for you. So we see it within that larger context of a pair programmer. So code review is just one of the the modes that we're looking at. There's a lot of people that work by themselves and and they don't necessarily have the pair programmer. They don't necessarily have a team to bounce stuff off of. And I, I'm trying to think of what they would do in open source they could potentially have, you know, maybe a partner on the project or something like that, that they could share what they're doing. Or, you know, they might just be, you know, that kind of solo person where they just like, okay, I'm just, we're just moving forward. <laughs> you know, and they just develop everything on their own. To have this sort of assistant that they can kind of turn on or off in all those sort of contexts that you mentioned, I, I think would be really powerful. It sounds like you're hoping that it would work across not just that solo person, but across like many of these other sort of situations. Are are you using it that way with your your team now? Are you like, hey, let me have this thing do a review of our own code? Sort of, I don't know. I, I don't know if I like the term dog fooding, but but uh, <laughs> but using it on your own before running it to uh, uh, you know a person code reviewing it. Yeah, absolutely. And you're absolutely right about 
the individual developer not necessarily having a pair programmer. Pair programming is awesome. Like it's great to have someone that you can bounce ideas against. It's great to have someone to review code for you. It's great to be able to sit back and think about the bigger picture of how is this going to work and direct the other person into implementing that. And it's also just a bit more sociable, isn't it? It's, uh, it's good to have someone else to share something with. I mean, one of my greatest experiences is working with other musicians and the light turning on in their eyes when I'm you know, sharing something and them going, yeah, that's it. Keep going. You know, that kind of thing <laughs> is pr pretty great. I mean, if people have never experienced it, this is kind of off topic, but sort of similar. If you watch the Beatles documentary that came out, there's this moment where Paul's coming up with basically the 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 riff and the ideas for Get Back, and he, they just sort of develop it right there on the spot. And to watch the other people kind of come around and the way they start bouncing stuff back and forth and people being excited about it, it's it's something that I've witnessed in many, many sort of circumstances. And I could feel that same way with code would happen. You'd have this like sort of like really great moment and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's really great. Or that idea of like, okay, now I can lean back in my chair and I can think a little bit, get away from the chair if somebody else is riding for a little bit. And, or maybe somebody, you know, pair, pair riding a, a screenplay or something. That's, that's probably why people have partners doing that too. Mm. So that's something I, I look forward to doing more of myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I love that example from the Beatles. I'll have to check out, check out that doc. Oh, it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Absolutely. We, the thing that we want to provide for people is an automated pair programmer. So we're never going to reach the same level as a human pair programmer because there's that social interaction and that emotional thing that you talked about there of this is great with you know like when you make great progress it, there's a lovely feeling but when you make it with someone else it's just that much better like you're you're solving it as a team <laughs> but if you don't have the opportunity to have a pair programmer and like most of the time we don't we can't always pair program and so and it is probably more draining to pair program than to program on our own but to have the option of an automated pair programmer that can do a lot of these tasks for us, that's what we're trying to achieve. So we do actually have a, a coding assistant that is available in VS Code and IntelliJ. That It works for Python, obviously, like it's super awesome for Python, but it works for other languages as well. It can simplify your code. It can explain code to you. It can generate tests. And... There's all sorts of things. You can have a conversation with it. So imagine having GPT-4 in your IDE, okay. and it's got access to your code base. That, that's what we have as like a baseline. Yeah. And then on top of that, we're adding some specific modes. Like when we're coding, we don't just write code. We're doing something at, at different times. We might be planning the work that we're about to do, or we might be troubleshooting an issue, or we might be doing a code review. And so the one that we're focused on right now is making the best possible code review experience. And right now you can do that in your IDE. We're making it so you can do that in your IDE. So you don't have to wait for someone else to go and review your code. That's kind of the dream. Like that 
one hour to like half day or you know occasionally three day wait to get a code review <laughs> yeah imagine you could get it in one minute that's that's what we're trying to do right now so okay yeah nick's been deep in the details of implementing it and it's it's really really awesome it's looking really really good and to your point yes we've kind of just set up in github so that it does kind of dog food on all our own uh prs okay we're still early days with that but that's yeah one else one thing we're doing as well how's it been is it like I, I think you already mentioned some things that it found as you've kind of done some stuff with it how have other members of the team felt about it working and, and so forth like what, what's been your early feedback it's been positive like um i think they've each found definite situations where it's been useful it sort of found something they would have had to go and catch themselves later that's the important thing like if each review can find something that saves time, that sort of improves the code, and that's a brilliant outcome. Yeah. So that's, we're trying to like make those moments sort of all the comments. So obviously times when it sort of comes up with things that aren't quite right, it's still, it's going in the right direction for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think it's like in an organization like this, it, it it's going to be additive. And, and like you said, maybe it'll, it'll help with the round tripping of, uh, the, the amount of code reviews and, and the time and stuff like that to get feedback on it. I think that's, I think it's really powerful. I mean, I, I, I'm already using tools like this for other things, you know, like, you know, writing show notes or other things. I'm, I'm using tools like Grammarly and things like that already. And so like, I feel like that's kind of more how I use it and I, Mm-hmm. I fight with it. <laughs> I'm still not the biggest fan of of what it, you know, how it wants to write things. Like, I think it has a, a resistance to style. Um, but I think in code, that may be part of that too. You know, that's something you kind of get into. One of the things I thought about that is something that is, you know, on the main pages of of the Sorcery website. And I, and I wondered about it a little bit. You have these... Uh, you call them standards, you know, like an organization would have like sort of code standards or almost sort of rules and structures. And I, I kind of like thinking of like, okay, well, what what are good like like tangible examples of that? Like, you know, that maybe you could say from your own organization or you could say for other, you know, places that you've worked at, like what would be, you know, rules that, that then you can sort of insert into a tool like Sorcery and say, hey, I want this to to behave this way. Do you have an example of that? Like, what would be a, a rule or a standard that you would set aside? Well, I mean, we, we touched on it earlier. You talked about how you would format with black. So we start at the lowest level of, like, you know, make, making sure the formatting is good and then making sure that a linting tool is pass, passing. And then you might have things like this code that looks like this should live in this part of the code base. Okay. You know, like the architectural rules, all of the database codes should live in this module. Okay. So actually like modular structures and stuff? Yes. All right. Absolutely. Interesting. Is it uh, avoiding the the dreaded utils uh, module (laughs) or something like that? (laughs) Yeah, you could could write a rule like that in SourceFeed, certainly. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, but it'd also be something like, if you inherit from this base database class, it has to live in this database package as opposed to like mm. the UI package, for instance, or something like that. I, I have a really nice example of something that happened to me, which was someone raised 
a bug that their sorcery config file was causing sorcery to crash. Mm. And it turned out that it had an emoji in their config file, and we were reading it using UTF-8. Yeah. So, you know, fairly interesting bug. There was uh, a wizard emoji in there for sorcery. So <laughs> that was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. But then what I was able to do was I fixed the bug, and then I was able to write a sorcery rule that said, whenever we read or write any files, make sure that we use UTF-8. Okay. And so that actually picked up another five places in the code base where we weren't reading or writing using UTF-8. So not only was I able to fix that bug, I was able to fix several other potential bugs for it. And by including that rule, I was able to ensure that any future code would not introduce that bug. Okay. Because we run those checks in CI. And also, whenever we're writing code, it will show up in your IDE. So it's really amazing for that sort of thing, like fixing a bug and stopping it from ever happening again or enforcing architecture rules, like this should live here, this should live there. Okay. Or things like this library is deprecated, no longer use it. Uh, Instead, you should be using this other library or something like that. <laughs> so, if you're suddenly pulling, yeah, some uh, some some tool that you were really comfortable with, but you know it's on its way out, then that might be a flag that gets raised pretty easily. I was wondering if you could flip it the other way on your unit your Unicode versus UTF kind of thing. You'd say, you know, make sure that our stuff is always a- able to do Unicode or something like that. If that was an important feature, yeah, and I guess. Just one other aspect is, so you could also enforce stylistic things, sort of functions have to be less than 20 lines. Oh, right. I was going to think about that. Or like public functions that don't start with an underscore, need a doc string. This kind of, yeah, not architectural, but stylistic Yeah, rule is also kind of possible. Yeah, that kind of gets back to the code metric conversation a little bit of, of running through things. And I know that there have been, quote unquote, rules that have been applied to code that you've increased the complexity <laughs> and that's a flag, right? Or or what have you. And I, I totally agree with the documentation part of like having to include like this amount of a doc string, you know, or I guess potentially the, the one you also mentioned of having tests, you know, which again, having a tool that can help write those is always going to be handy because I, I think that might be one of I haven't had that many people come on the show that were like super duper excited about writing tests. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's needed and it's it's a, a good thing, but it's not necessarily the the glamorous part of writing code. <laughs> so it's like wrapping up your cables. <laughs> <laughs> One of the nice aspects of having your rules defined in code is where do those rules normally live mm. if they're not defined in code? Like, typically, they'll be in a senior developer's head or like a few senior developers' heads. Yeah. Or they'll be written down in a document somewhere that probably people don't refer to and people don't read. And the onboarding people, you have to like, one of the things that you have to do when you onboard people is transfer all of this knowledge about these are the rules of the code base. This is how you do things. This is what you should do. This is what you should not do. And the really nice thing of codifying that in actual executable rules is that knowledge transfer is automated. And the, that 
part of the code review doesn't need to happen anymore. Yeah. It's like this if this is an architectural rule, it'll get picked up in CI. The person implementing it will learn about it immediately and then be able to fix it. And so it saves time for the reviewer and it saves time for the developer. And it means that that knowledge is not lost. It just accumulates and becomes more useful over time. I was thinking about that because, I mean, I don't know how many times I've I heard people talking about you know, black and, and removing the conversation of code formatting. That's great because, again, it becomes, uh, this is our organization's rules. <laughs> if you want to play in this house, <laughs> you're going to need to follow these rules. And it it totally lifts it off the code review part of, of your plate. Absolutely. Which is great. You know, it's going to save the, the, the time and it, it feels less uh, nanny style nagging type of, conversations which is great you know there's less of this sort of red pen being written all over your 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 code <laughs> if the thing is doing it sort of in an automated way it's like ah yes and you know whatever Th- that person will figure it out <laughs> and it not have to be brought up by by uh, other people that i think that's really cool what does that look like as far as I know we, we're a, a, a non-visual podcast here but um, <laughs> as far as building the rules is it is it a, a pretty straightforward sort of structural thing is it is it itself code or is it parameters you put in like a settings file like how does that kind of manifest itself in a tool like sorcery so you can create a kind of rules file or a series of rules files you have in your repo and you write the rules they look similar to python code it's sort of a dsl okay so it's basically python code but you can replace variables with sort of you know this kind of dollar notation so it's like it can be any name and then you have kind of conditions you can put. So you can sort of write something that captures all functions and then put a condition. You know, it has to be less than 30 lines. Okay. So there are a few things to kind of learn. Um, but then once you get the hang of it, it looks kind of like Python code. So it's quite straightforward. It sounds like writing a prompt, <laughs> <laughs> which is a skill I think a lot of us are developing as we play with the LLM stuff. Like the, the idea of like, how, how do I speak to this thing and to get it to you know output what I want? And you end up saving those sort of ways that you you communicate. So that that sounds very similar in a way. The the really nice thing about them is what if you look at a rule, even if you didn't know how to write it, you'd pretty much be able to understand what it does. Because it just looks like it looks very much like the Python code that it matches. So it looks like the Python code, it just captures a few things within it. So it might capture the name of a function. Okay. And then it says this function must be camel case, which might be an unusual thing to do in Python. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you guys got your own style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that we kind of have alluded to uh, inside of you know these features in sorcery is this idea of having it be a coding assistant are are there things that are different about how sorcery approaches that compared to maybe something that people have dabbled with like get a copilot or or um or even just the features in an ide that are helping with autocomplete are there certain things that are unique about the coding assistant inside sorcery yeah so typically if you've used Copilot is a, a completion tool. Okay. So you're writing your line of code and 
you'll see in some shadow text suggestion for the end of the line or possibly even multiple lines. And it's really, really fantastic. I love Copilot. It's, it's super smart. It seems to be getting smarter and smarter all the time. And if you're writing a piece of code and it's able to infer what you're trying to do, then it quite often gets the right answer or something close to the right answer. Okay. So the Sorcery Coding Assistant isn't a, a code completion tool. It's not right. working while you're writing code. It's more of you have, a, you have a sidebar and you have a conversation that you can have with it. So you're actually able to ask it questions. How do I make an HTTP request in Python, for instance? And it's going to tell you, you know, install the request library, do request.get, and blah, blah, blah. You've got your answer. Okay. So we have it more as like this, if we go back to that pair programmer ideal of someone that you're talking to, someone that you're interacting with, and it's on your own terms. It's not always suggesting things as you're writing code. It's when you need it. Actually, tell me how to simplify this piece of code. Tell me how to optimize the performance of this function. Tell me, uh, generate me a doc string for this class. Write me some tests for this. Review this code for me. So you you ask for it when you want it, and it's it's available all the time. But it's only when you want it. So yeah. very much complementary to a code completion tool, which is also fantastic. Yeah, I I'm smiling and laughing a little bit because I've mentioned a couple times I had experience with Pylance in an early version, and some of these quote unquote code completion tools. Uh, can be over eager <laughs> and do things yeah. <laughs> that you are not looking for it to do and and I know people that you know that's I think why they maybe they're in vim or they're in other types of things where they're like I let me just complete my idea <laughs> and get my <laughs> thoughts out as opposed to like like it constantly filling the screen with potential you know all the different options of things that we could do right now. And I know you yeah. can tame, tame those things down, but the default is eager mode. Yeah, And yeah. so sometimes that can be a little much. So I, I kind of think that's interesting that it's like, okay, I'm going to write some code and then I'm going to ask this, this assistant, you know, hey, what's going on? And like, I, I need help with this, you know, you know, where you might have gone off to, you know, go search for an answer or what have you. So, okay, that makes a lot of sense to me, uh, the approach then. One of the things that I think is interesting right now is we talk about this LLM sort of assistance of writing code. Do you in any way think it's going to increase the volume of code that's being generated by a team? This this ability to work more rapidly, do you do you see that as a as a potential future that there'll be, you know, even more code? Definitely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, get GitHub themselves have published some research that probably should be taken with a pinch of salt on how much faster people develop when they're using Copilot. I think their claim is if you're starting a project, they they had something like if you're trying to build an express server from scratch with a simple application, how long does it take? And it's someone with and without using Copilot. Right. And the time savings or the speed up was tremendous. I can't remember the exact numbers, but you know, like forty percent faster or something like that. Obviously, most of the time we're not doing this coding from scratch thing. 
we're coding within a, a code base and that's a much harder task and it's put yeah there's a lot more of understanding the codes before you're able to write co- write new code right you got to see how it's going to interact with your existing code or you're going to have problems yeah yes think, absolutely absolutely another point is a lot of non-coders i think are going to start coding so they'll be producing a lot of code obviously they haven't got that framework of um this is the right style. This is how you do it. This is best practices. You might be more reliant on the LLM. There'll be a lot more code from that. I mean, interestingly, um, our non-technical co-founder, Tim, has started coding. Ah, okay. Using these LLMs to do um, sort of more front-end work. So it's, it's even happening in our team as well. That's interesting. So like inside of a code base, the general rule would be developing specific features, fixing bugs, kind of staying within something unless you're kind of you know opening up a whole new branch of things that you're going to do usually the volume of code is is somewhat contained versus somebody hey i'm starting a brand new project And, and i wonder about that like somebody with a brand new project you're having this tool help you write this code I feel like <laughs> having the need for review at that point of this volume of code that's being generated. I mentioned, you know, something when we started that that isn't part of this conversation, but like this this need for like from a security standpoint, just reviewing code for those kinds of things and, and what's being generated out of out of these LLMs, I think is kind of interesting. I wonder about do you feel like the walls that are when you're writing within your own framework and your own tools will impose that limitation on using some of these kind of tools? Does it make it harder to prompt something to write something? Is it much more of a tool when you're starting with, like, Scratch? (laughs) I guess you could feed it all your code, which I I think is always kind of maybe questionable, too, at some point, (laughs) as far as the the security there, too. So It's, It's a massive, massive topic this yeah like it's it's obviously it's very easy when you're starting out to just write code using one of these tools and one of the big challenges is when you have existing code like you said you want to feed some of the code to the llm so it knows what to do you want to provide it the context right but you can't provide it the whole code base because it could be millions of lines of code you want to provide it the relevant aspect of your code base. And, you know, that that could depend on the task at hand. With, like, a code review, obviously, you want to provide it the diff, and you probably <laughs> want to provide it the <laughs> yeah. what the initial feature or bug was so it knows how to review that and understand whether the right thing has been implemented. And probably you also want to provide it with a description of the change from the developer or from the pull request or something like that. And then you might also want to provide it with related pieces of the code or like a style guide or things. Yeah. So so it can check, is it written in a stylistic way? Is it duplicating other pieces of the code? Right, right. You know, all of the things that we look for when we're doing code reviews. Whereas if you're doing something like generating a test, there's a very different set of context that you want to provide for that. It's like, what is this test for? What? What are we actually testing here? Yeah. What's the piece of code that we're testing? What are the other functions that this piece of code that we're testing calls? What are the imports? What you know? What's what are the class structure? What are the various things that we need to 
provide it so it knows how to set up the test and run it. How are other tests written in the scope base so that we write the test in the same style? Yeah. So for each different task, there's a different set of context that you need to provide to the LLM. And LLMs can understand a great amount of context, but they certainly cannot understand the whole code base. So you have to be super selective and super smart about what you provide to them so that they give you basically the right answer and they don't start hallucinating things about your code base. Right. (laughs) Coming up with with random stuff. (laughs) Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about it here and there and and mentioned, you know, sorcery as this tool. And maybe you can kind of give us an update of what's new in the program, you know, outside of this code reviewing functionality. What's happening with sorcery these days? Sure. Before I talk about what's new, let me recap what sorcery always has been. So Core functionality has always been a rules-based analysis of your code, which spots issues, explains the problem, and suggests refactorings and fixes for it. This runs in most IDEs, like VS Code, IntelliJ, and Vim. We also can run in Sublime and Emacs. And it also works as a CLI tool, so it can be used as a pre-commit hook or in CI. And it also works as a GitHub bot. So more recently, what we've been working on is this coding assistant using LLMs. So this sits in VS Code or in IntelliJ sidebar, and it has three main ways of interacting with it. Firstly, you can chat to it, you can ask it programming questions, ask it any questions about your code, or ask it to make changes to your code. Second, you can run our highly tuned recipes for specific tasks, like explaining code, simplifying code, optimizing the performance of a function, generating dot strings for a function or class, and then generating tests, which we use all the time, is really, really good. And finally, we've got this code review functionality that we've been talking about, and that's right there in IDE. So you can just get an instant review of your code changes at a click of a button. You don't have to create a pull request and wait up to a week for a review, you just click a button, get it straight away, it's amazing. And then separate from the coding assistant, the other way you can get an automatic code view is in GitHub. So you can either set it up using a GitHub action or you'll be able to set it up even easier using a Git, using our GitHub bot. Then every time someone on your team opens a pull request, Sorcery will review it. I, love getting a review in a minute and just being able to address the issues it raises straight away. It's brilliant. So right now we're super focused on code views in GitHub and we're using it ourselves to review all of our PRs. It's early days, but it's already really, really useful. I can't wait to see where it's going to go. And you said you didn't like the word dog food and we have literally a dog fooding meeting every Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's okay. I just think I, I think it might be some people don't like it. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, every week we talk about how we've used it, all of the things that it's been really useful for, all of the things that it hasn't quite worked out for, and then we're just iterating on that. We're using it to improve our development process. We're using it on a daily basis to write our code faster, to write better code, to get automated reviews of our code, to help us generate the dreaded tests that you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, sure. 
And yeah, we're we're in fairly early days of the coding assistant, but I mean, it's awesome already and it's just going to get better and better. And I think we are probably the most focused team on using LLMs for code reviews out there. So if you want to code review your codes automatically, save that time from getting some feedback from someone else or just a solo developer and want someone to give you a second pair of eyes, yeah. then our code review tool is going to be super awesome, super, super soon. Nice. I guess one thing to point out is that it has been in closed alpha. Uh, I don't know when this episode's going out. We're very shortly um, kind of releasing it more broadly. Yeah, I think this episode will come out close to the end of November. Oh, cool. But by then, yeah, it should be broadly available. Okay, great. Well, I, I like to ask everybody these questions uh, when they come on. And the first one is, what are you excited about in the world of Python? Nick, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, sure. I think for me, like we write in Python, we have to deliver it um, to all the different operating systems and make sure it works. Currently, we use a package called Nutka, which is actually pretty awesome and compiles it into C. Um, that, that works, but it's not a kind of standard. So I think all the developments with WASM and Python, yeah. not only in the browser, but maybe um, even as kind of a runtime, that if we could have a standard way of deploying Python on everyone's machine, then we no longer have to worry about it so much. Uh, that'd be awesome. Um, I think I listened to your episode on it was it with Brett Cannon okay. a little while ago. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely keeping an eye on that. Well, I guess we were at PyCon US two years ago, was it, when they announced PyScript? Yeah. So yeah, I've been following that super closely. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by it. And like I, I really wanted to know the difference between WASI and WASM and kind of the differences. And <laughs> there were some really interesting things that I learned, like the idea that some of those like apps that run on like an Apple TV or in embedded devices run on, on WASI. I was like, oh, wow, okay. So this is like stuff that's out there now. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, it's it's been pretty <laughs> intriguing um, to continue to watch the, the development of that and these, I don't know, targets as they're called. Um, yeah. I know that uh, uh, Russell Keith McGee just introduced uh, that he would like to, as a pep, uh, to get iOS to be one of the targets also. And, you know, I agree, you know, mobile has always been an interesting platform for for me. And so I'd looked at tools like Noitka uh, also, because, you know, the trick often is like, man, I don't know if I want to give this code to somebody else and I just want them to run it. <laughs> I don't want to like, <laughs> to like have to install Python on their machine and teach them about virtual environments and all that kind of stuff. So that's great. Brendan, uh, what are you excited about? I mean, I, I continue to be excited by all the AI developments. I've been a fan of, well, I really got into it when AlphaGo came out all those years ago and defeated Lee, D, uh, Lee C. Dahl at, at Go, and I just was fascinated from then, and I just can't believe the progress. I just can't <laughs> believe how, how rapidly it's all happening and how powerful LLMs are now, and yeah. Um, and the cool thing is everyone's writing all of these models using Python. So it's, you know, yeah. low level, you've got all of these matrix operation libraries and things and GPUs, but the high level design of it is all in Python. And it's, yeah, the, the progress is astonishing. It's kind of like you're not completely on the sidelines. You can kind of go and look at the code and, and, and see some of what's actually happening as opposed to this like, 
watching technology advance the way like you know i don't know how microprocessors work (laughs) and what's changing inside of them specifically but if i can go and look at the code and understand the 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 workings of it that's a, a very different viewpoint yeah absolutely and back in the day i was implementing a bunch of these models like i was implementing some of the atari playing reinforcement learning algorithms so okay i got really deep into that and so yeah i just love it i love the progress and i keep up to date on all of that nice so it's kind of not a new thing it's just continued excitement around that yeah 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 no it's okay it's you can continue to be excited (laughs) 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 all right so what do you want to learn next again this does not have to be python specific uh nick you want to go first on this one too yeah not python but probably um Rust. Okay. So I've been kind of following along with uh, Rough and uh, the kind of massive growth of that. Um, I think they've just released a, a formatter to compete with Black. And it's actually we've, one of our developers, is Ben, has um, rewritten some of our server in Rust uh, the other day. Ah. It's performing really well. Nice. And we've been kind of back, back and forth whether we're going to need that performance going forward for kind of some of the analysis we want to do. Kind of trying to stack and analyze your whole code base really quickly we might kind of want to drop into that so, yeah cool do you have any resources you, you're going to use Did Ben have any suggestions like read this book <laughs> <laughs> i don't i'll try and dig some up <laughs> okay uh what do you want to learn next brendan well I, I am trying to learn or i have successfully completed a, a rubik's cube recently <laughs> so <laughs> all right <laughs> I, i'm learning that my my brother brother-in-law is like really amazing at it. He can solve it in about twenty-five seconds or less. Yeah, yeah. So you just see him going like this, and then it's like, oh wow, how did you do that? Yeah. So he he lent me this book, Speed okay. Solving the Cube. <laughs> there you go. Which, <laughs> so I'm I'm on the chapter basic solutions, and then you get to the the end, and it's like memorize all of the <laughs> like sixty different patterns and then yeah, yeah. all of these different algorithms that you have to solve it. it yeah it's it's good fun it's a good way of spending five minutes or so yeah if i ever have five minutes <laughs> <laughs> when you mentioned the atari thing i um a friend of mine is like kind of an atari freak definitely gen x guy <laughs> and he is buying this new console that's very very small that's like this uh retro Atari classics kind of thing. And uh, it comes with like Atari style controllers, the old ones with the stick kind of standing up and so forth. But it comes with like not only the 2600, but like pretty much every generation of Atari after that. And there are arcade machines and all this sort of stuff all embedded in this thing that like, I don't know, it's the size of like a very small notebook, tiny little thing, you know, big enough to put like a USB-C and a HDMI jack on it. So, but, uh, but yeah, I was kind of like amazed at like, there's all these ones that were like, not even cartridges, you know, like they were just like, people had written the code that would, you know, run on that. And so, but he's fascinated by it, (laughs) but I I think it'd be fun to do what you're talking about it. Like, you know, do the, the, the training, uh, thing with the the games. So, cause yeah, kind of got simple rules to train from. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very different reward you know when you play a game and you beat a game it's like yeah <laughs> you know pure like yes i did it whereas mm-hmm. when you're solving a problem it's but you know it's 
is different is uh rewarding in a very different way i think yeah, yeah. it's like adrenaline versus just like pleasure <laughs> yeah it's kind of like working through puzzles and stuff yeah yeah exactly so i guess this could be for both of you just generally you know how can people follow your guys's work online what's the best way yeah so you can follow us on sorcery at sorcery ai uh, on twitter or i guess it's called x now um, <laughs> it's okay our changelog always uh sorts of things in our blog uh, i think we're going to start producing a bit more blog content on code review and kind of how we're approaching it and how optim and the best way of doing it uh yeah soon awesome yeah so our, our website's uh https sorcery.ai with a u <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> sorcery with a u yeah exactly <laughs> You had to double that up, for, you know, because the UK, right? That's why you added the U. It's because we took it away from color and things like that. Yeah, <laughs> <United> exactly. <States. laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with Source Guide. Nothing to do. With <laughs> um, yeah, we also got GitHub. We got uh, okay several GitHub repos, and anything else, Nick. Are you guys doing uh, Mastodon at, at all yet or other socials? Oh, yeah. I've got a Blue Sky account personally, but um, we're still kind of figuring out where it's all going to land. Um, yeah, yeah. It does seem to be splintering a bit. Yeah, it's yeah. still in flux. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and of course, uh, we'll probably hopefully see you uh, since PyCon just got announced. Maybe we'll see you in uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah. Well, we seem to meet up every year there. So it'd be, that'd be cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on the show. It was really great to talk to you guys again. Thanks very much, Christopher. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having us. I want to thank Brendan and Nick for coming back on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.